Summarizing so much of his argument in Romans 8, Paul begins, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law has set you free. For the, for the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit which dwells in you. May God add his blessing to the reading of Romans 8 in part, where we're reminded what life is about. And it's not what you can see or touch. It's not what people think about you. And it's not what you feel like. It's really something far beyond the flesh. That is the walk by the Spirit, which we forfeit through personal sin, physical, verbal, mental. Those church sins that we often don't think of as sinful, like jealousy, bitterness, wrath, um, those are just as sinful as the physical sins that uh, get so much attention and shock us. The solution to personal sin for believers in Jesus is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I always offer you a moment of silent prayer if you need to be sure you're in prayer ground so that this is truly the work of the Spirit teaching us His Word. Let's pray. What a pleasure and privilege, Father, to join together at the end of the day, to learn of you, to think your thoughts after you, to know you better. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for answering our prayers through the day, for walking with us, for fulfilling that promise. If we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Thank you for the reality of the spiritual things which you cannot see or touch, which are more real to us the more your Spirit gets a hold of us with the Word. We ask for that work tonight, Father. We're going to open our hearts to your word as we open the Bible. We pray that you'll do a work, a transformation in us to be more and more like you, to want what you want, to think what you think. Father, always for your glory, we're asking, we're little children begging for you to feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gathering together a topic tonight, sort of as a punctuation mark on Isaiah chapter 30. Walking through Isaiah verse by verse is a real joy. It's a challenge to us historically. It's a challenge uh, for, some t- for some people. It's a challenge theologically. I don't think it's super tough theologically to work through uh, what Isaiah is doing. God is just holding Israel accountable for the covenant he made with them at Sinai. And he's doing what he said he would do in uh, cursing them for their idolatry. And he is using Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, to do it. And we're, we're concluding the powerful message of the Lord of history. We're in that kind of closing phase where we hear of God and the way you're supposed to relate to God. And I'm, talk, I'm entitling this message tonight, The Fear of the Lord, because it is so helpful to organize our thoughts. What's coming for Israel is deliverance. What's coming for the world is judgment and ultimately deliverance of Israel after a time of judgment. And what God wants to do with Israel and with all the nations, with His people, He's going to do. 
And we forget that he's there. And the fear of the Lord is the first thing to go in some cases. And we get bad theology because we think that the Old Testament is the wrathful God and the New Testament is the sweet Jesus. And so we don't fear the Lord anymore. And we take one verse out of context and 1 John 4 and perfect love casts out fear. And then we don't think we're supposed to fear the Lord. And um, you get all kinds of bad ideas when you let go of the Bible and you start trying to reason independently of it. But tonight I hope to show you that no, the fear of the Lord is the order of the day throughout all the ages. It'll always be with us forever and ever as his creatures and is a great blessing and privilege to know him well enough to fear him. The problem with Israel is they lost sight of that. And for example, in Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he, is, is also, he also is wise and will bring disaster, does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand he who helps will stumble, and he who has helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. It's real simple. They just didn't believe that God was there or that he cared or that there was a consequence of their choices. How could they not believe it? How could they be the people just a few hundred years, just a few hundred years after the Red Sea deliverance? How could they be so, so foolish? How could they lose track of God so quickly when they had the Lord's presence through the cloudy pillar the Shekinah glory at the tabernacle? How could they have so many representations of God's forgiveness with the sacrificial system and the feasts and all the ways that God was showing himself and telling them to trust him? How could they revert to idolatry um, from which Abraham had been called? How could this happen? Well, God's not physically visible. And a manifestation of God, well, you've got the creation of the universe around you. And this is a manifestation, not his it isn't him, but it shows that he's there because it, after all, does exist. And we walk through creation and the people that study it the closest sometimes are the least faithful, that believe in him the least and try to pretend like he isn't there. And it's really universal that people lose the fear of the Lord. And so I just want to go over what the scriptures teach on this a little bit. Um, and we have it a major theme in the Old Testament, but it's certainly... Uh, the theme that runs through the New Testament as well. And there is not a dispensational distinction. Um, there, are, there are distinctions across the ages, like the baptism of the Spirit is a new work since the day of Pentecost in AD 33. No one was ever unified to Jesus Christ, sharing his past, present, and future, and to be called in Christ until the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And that's a new work. But that did not rescind the obvious need for us to recognize omnipotence in God and say, we don't have that and he does. And there's nothing in the New Testament to cancel that. And some people will say, well, but Paul doesn't talk about the fear of the Lord, but they haven't done the work to look at that. He talks about it all the time. He's always saying fear of the Lord. And we'll, we'll see that tonight. Um, and my point is not to refute that point if that's easily done. My point is to reestablish what this means. I had some application points for you last. I want to review with you about just the idea of the fear of the Lord. Yerat Yahweh or Yerat Adonai, this idea of of fearing God is something more than respect. And I pay respect to whom respect is just something more than that. Although this word is flexible, the words in the New Testament, Old Testament for fear are flexible and they could mean I'm afraid of what people will think of me. So I have peer pressure, but it could also mean there's a lion that's about to eat me and I'm terrified to the end of my, you know, down to my toenails. Or it can mean that I am in awe of the infinite God with whom I'm dealing and I'm keeping in mind intentionally, though I can't see him, I'm keeping in mind what the Bible says about him. And Jesus says, don't fear those who can just destroy your body, but to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And the power of God draws my awe. And that's more than I just respect you. That's I'm in constant awe of who you are. And I'm mindful that as the writer of Hebrews says, it's a terrifying or fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God for, for discipline. We said that the fear of the Lord is one of your best friends. It's one of the great deliverances of wisdom, as we'll see tonight, because of the following reasons. It is a recognition of God's power, God's righteousness, God's justice, and that always presents a differential. I'm not powerful. God is powerful. Um, we are weak, but he is strong. That, the fear of the Lord is just the recognition. If you and I really could see, 
Like, like um, Elisha's servant, if God opened our eyes to see the differential between us and how important we think we are and God and how important he really is, if we saw the differential, we would, we would find ourselves to be ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous joke when we think we're self-important and disregard God's desires. This is, this is the nature of God being omnipotent and infinitely glorious. And so just calling to mind the essence of God, the character of God as revealed in the Bible will bring, bring us back to this sense of the immensity, the immensity of God. Uh, you kind of de- could describe it as, as like vertigo when you, when you um, if you were blindfolded and taken to a high-rise building and, um, and then marched out to the roof and then you were set up on the ledge to look down and then they took the blindfold off. And you, on the high, 100, 200-story building, you look down and say, that's just a painting. That's not real down there. When you started to realize, oh, no, that's the, that's the ground down there. And the wind you feel, that's pretty, pretty choppy up here. Um, this is, God is infinitely magnificent. And it's, it's hard to, to, to imagine that we don't fear him, that we don't have awe for who he is when you think about just his omnipotence. Fear, fearing God also brings an awareness of our weakness and that, that difference and that's holiness. Holiness means the difference. The holiness of God is the difference between his infinite righteousness and that which falls short of it. That's what holiness means. It, is, it doesn't mean goofiness. It doesn't mean mysticism. It doesn't mean emotionalism. It doesn't mean pietism. Holiness or the holiness of God is the differential. It's the set-apartness of God in terms of his moral excellence. And when we see how we differ that's a moment of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah, woe is me for I'm ruined. Remember Isaiah 6, that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awareness of our ability, um, our liability to God's wrath for our wickedness. That not only is he perfectly righteous and I fall short, but he is righteous to be in a just wrath against our wickedness. And, and there's no hope if I have to take the brunt of that wrath. That's a legitimate attitude God has toward our sin. And, and if you don't, if you're callous about sin, and yeah, God's God, he's a God, he's in control. But God's also love, and I know he loves me, and so grace is fine. And, and you get callous about this, you're going to lose track of how great God's grace is and what the cross means and how magnificent it is that you have a Savior. And so I don't want to dangle you like spiders over a fire like they did in New England in the 1700s with uh, the sinners in the hands of the angry God. I mean, we would like to kick off a great awakening in America, but um, I can't tell believers that God is holding you over the fire of, of his wrath. I can't tell believers that, and neither could he if they're believers, because you have Christ, and more importantly, God has you, and um, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I will never tell you that you, as a believer in Christ, with the new life in Christ, having been born again by the Spirit of God, are in danger of God's wrath and being unborn from his family. I'll never tell you that. I don't believe that. I think that you have Christ, so you have the life now. But what I can tell you is that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And um, I can dangle us over the fire of God's discipline, but not the flames of hell, understand. So we are, we are definitely in a position of blessedness and grace uh, from God because of what Jesus has accomplished. And the more we fear the Lord, the more we'll appreciate the work of our Savior. And the less we can, we're concerned or sensitive about the wickedness of our hearts and the sinfulness of sin, the more the cross will be irrelevant. Eh, I believe it. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm saved. And you're not going to be in that moment dealing with things as they are. But if you could see the difference, if you could see what Isaiah saw, you would feel it. And so we go to the Word and we rehearse these things, we review these things, and we ask God to give us that perspective, that awe of Him that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a baseline sense of humility before that awesome glory, that I am not God, God is God, and I don't ever want to think that it's about me. And yet I find myself, and we find ourselves sliding into that thought that it's after all, it's about me, this is what I want, and God isn't letting me have my way, or something like that, and it's, that's just ridiculous. But it, it betrays a lack of the fear of the Lord. We don't have a sense of his 
awesomeness. But when you fear him, you come, everything comes into perspective. And this is wonderful. And by the way, this is wonderful in all kinds of ways for us to humble ourselves and see God as he is, as he revealed himself to us and see us in difference. It's a magnificent thing for everyone that you know, everyone that deals with you, for you to develop humility and let go of that insistence that you have to have your way or it has to be about you. It's a marvelous moment of everyone around you saying, oh, thank the Lord that we have uh, a calm, we have peace, we have, we have this person who otherwise would be f- totally disordered and totally miserable seeking himself or her, herself good and, and what, what they want for themselves, that we could have a moment of peace and quiet and fear the Lord, that it be about him and not about us. And um, so marriages get fixed and you know, uh, parent-teacher conferences go better and all kinds of things smooth out when we just break ourselves down in Philippians 2 style and we humble ourselves before God and we say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. And that, that's the attitude of the fear of the Lord. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not as I will, but your will be done. We say the fear of the Lord should be our default attitude toward God and it doesn't cancel that he's our heavenly father. It doesn't cancel that Jesus is our Savior, that we'll run with Christ. It, 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 it goes hand in hand with that. And we'll see some passages that perhaps tonight that, that show us that. And it is the consequence of faith in him. When you're not fearing the Lord, you're not believing in him. When I'm not fearing him and his presence and his attitude about my thoughts, my decisions, my actions, when that's not happening and I don't really care because I'm not really fearing him, it's not motivating my behavior, I'm really not trusting in him in that moment. That's, that's that functional atheism, that carnality that we believers slide into all too often. does no good to say we don't, right? What we do when we're there, we say, oh, I did. And then we go get back and then we consider him and we we focus on our Lord and we seek that occupation with Christ from which we can live a life that is pleasing to him. But fear of the Lord is a consequence of faith in him. And to say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. Yes, but are you trusting him? Are you actually entrusting yourself to him? Uh, Philippians, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 style. And I believe that the fear of the Lord is designed it's, a, it's an attitude of our heart that is designed to motivate our actions. It stops us from doing things that will destroy us. It gets us going to do things that God wants us to do that are for our ultimate good because God glorifies himself in blessing us. It is, it is the, it's kind of like the helper for our consciences. Now let me illustrate the fear of the Lord on your conscience. In the old days, uh, it was actually a thing to say mother wouldn't like that. When the boys would go off to war, they would be motivated at times. Depending on the relationship with their families, they would think back to mom and dad and say, well, mom and dad wouldn't like that I do that. Think of the long time ago, Daniel and his friends. And they had been taught apparently by their parents to fear the Lord and to obey him. So they knew not to eat the meat sacrificed to idols and, continue, and participate in the pagan and idolatry of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So they didn't do what they, were, what they were offered. They didn't take what they were offered and they ate vegetables instead. And God blessed them and honored them for that. And their conscience was kind of calibrated to the Lord. But they had apparently been taught by their parents. And, and the, Mom and dad to that teenage boy or girl who have cultivated a relationship and that child has responded to that relationship, just think about, some of you have have had tender hearts as teenagers. Others of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you think back and say, mom, what if mom saw what I'm doing? What if dad knew what was going on? That sense of, I don't want that outcome. I don't want them to be disappointed. That's fear. That's a form of fear. And it's the kind of fear where they feared the crowds that we read through the New Testament. They feared for fear of what the Jews would think. Peer pressure is a form of fear. And if you take it from mom would be disappointed to infinite God would be disappointed, right? And perfect righteous God and the one who loves me better than anybody's ever loved me or ever could love me. He's disappointed. This is a way that the fear of the Lord motivates our choices, our actions, our thoughts. It calibrates our consciences. And that's a personal relationship factor. That's where I'm really relating to him. I care what he thinks. Caring what he thinks is an adjunct to fear of the Lord. All right, let's go to Proverbs chapter 1 in our Bibles. I'll go to Proverbs 1. I've got my Bible open to Isaiah. So I'm going to flip back a little bit. Oh, went too far. I went to Psalms. And then I'm going to go 
pass back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, very famous verse, sort of defining what wisdom is and how, I should say, how wisdom relates to the fear of the Lord. It's kind of a summary at the end of the conclusion of a section of extended poetry in verses 1 through 7 of Proverbs 1. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the first principle in knowledge, the beginning of knowledge. And the contrast to that is fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you've got two ways in one seven. You've got the fool way and the wise way. The fool despises, looks down upon chokhmah, skill, the skill in this passage of living your life before God at his pleasure. Chokhmah or, or wisdom is the skill to live your life before God at his pleasure. Fools look down on this. They despise wisdom and instruction. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the first principle of knowledge. So if you know a bunch of stuff, but you don't fear the Lord, then your knowledge is not ultimately useful for what really matters, which is to be pleasing to God. I believe that's the theological nature of wisdom. And so somebody that's really skilled in an area of God's creation, who is rejecting the God who made it, has cut himself, has cut herself off from that um, the, the real value of having that skill. God loves it when we're creative. He loves when we manipulate his creation and, um, and, and bear his image by, by creating from his, within his creation. Um, but uh, what a shame to be doing that separate from a personal relationship with him as you're seeking to please him in that manipulation. But the fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge. This is um, not Old Testament truth versus New Testament truth. This is just life. This is wisdom in a universe where God is God. And remember, we're not. And so um, what a tragedy to despise wisdom and instruction and the fool being the opposite of the wise. A similar verse in Proverbs 2 verse 5, he says, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. But in context, he's telling them about wanting. He's telling, the, the, the father's telling his son about wanting wisdom. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your ear to understanding. All these are, all these are synonyms for the skill of wisdom to be pleasing to God in your choices. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Now listen to the language. If you go after wisdom with all you've got, you will come up with the fear of the Lord. Let me, I'm paraphrasing. If you, if you really want and long and desire and work hard to get at wisdom and understanding and insight and all these synonyms, you will find the fear of the Lord. We've been fishing all night. Well, eventually you're going to catch what you really want, what you're really after, which is the fear of the Lord. And discover the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom from, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The st uh, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Uh, there's more he says, obviously. There's a whole rest of the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible. But just stopping there... <laughs> Wisdom in, in God's perspective, skill to, to be about life, can't be done separate from a relationship with him. It's the folly of all of the world. And this, is, this gets into what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians when he says that we're fools to the world, and the, but the foolishness of God changes the wisdom of the wise. Uh, the, the ground wire that really works everything is the fear of the Lord. And... It's a summary way to say you have a relationship with him. If you, finite little creature, have a relationship with infinite, mag majestic God, then the nature of the relationship is that God is God and we fear him. That's, that's the idea. That's the idea. And that would be awe. That would be awe. And with that awe, of course, would come adoration. But it's an adoration that's always characterized by awe. In Proverbs 8.13, let's go there and read a little bit in Proverbs 8. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See, this wisdom thing is moral. It's not amoral. Like, well, if you do this, then good things happen, and that's how the universe works. It's not karma. It's not, you know, uh, offend someone and you get offended. It's God. God is personal. 
We're really dealing with a personal being, and his wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. Now, I've heard people teach that this is Jesus. This is God identifying Jesus as wisdom, but that's impossible. Wisdom is being personified as a woman that the sons of the king should want to marry. So that, that doesn't work to say Jesus is wisdom. I know he's become to us wisdom and righteousness in the New Testament, but, um, but it really isn't intended by Solomon to be a Christological treatise. The wisdom with which God the Son created the universe is speaking. The wisdom with which God the Son, the eternally preexisting Son of God with no beginning and no end, he used this wisdom that's speaking to create the universe. And so he didn't have a beginning as wisdom is said to have a beginning in Proverbs 8. And of course, the Neo-Aryans, which is the, the watchtower people, they love to say, you Christians, you, or you, you evangelicals, whatever we are, you believe Proverbs 8 is about Jesus, but it has a, wisdom had a beginning. We don't believe it's, we think it's the wisdom Jesus used to create. We don't think it's talking about Jesus uh, personified. Lady wisdom, does not wisdom call uh, in Proverbs 8.1? And understanding lift up her voice, top of the heights, beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gate to the opening of the city. At the entrance of her door, she cries out to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. Oh, naive, petite, gullible ones. We'll see that again, the naive ones, and you're, if you're looking at New American Standard. The best English word for that right now in this culture is gullible, for petit in Hebrew. Understand prudence, no oh, fools. Understand wisdom. Listen, for I'll speak noble things, and opening of my lips will reveal right things, for my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Wickedness, Lady Wisdom says, is an abomination to my lips. I don't even like to say it. All the utterances of my words are in righteousness, or my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing crooked or perverted in them. They're all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver. Knowledge rather than choice is gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with chokhmah, with lady wisdom. Her is the pronoun because it's talking about a girl. Because wisdom is personified as a woman that a wise young man should be desiring. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, their sisters. Uh, wisdom and prudence are two Hebrew words in the feminine. And I, I find knowledge and discretion. And then verse 13, the fear of the Lord is moral. It is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. If you have wisdom, then you adopt the fear of the Lord. That's the wisest thing you can do. And you will hate wickedness. Let's start with the wickedness of the people next door. And you know what? Don't do that. Let's start with our own. Let's start with the wickedness of the person in the mirror. Do you like your sin? Of course, that's why you do it. Do you think about how you're supposed to be with wisdom, hating wickedness? We, at times, will take our sin and then we'll go make a nice little cushy doghouse for it in the backyard and we'll fence it in, we'll wall it off and tell everybody, don't go back in there, please. That's my own special place that just for me and my, my pet back there. And we have our little special sins and we nurture them and we cultivate them and we try to shield them from other people knowing about them. And that is a, a cancer to your spiritual life and to your soul. Oh, but I confess my sin. Yeah, but you still have the pen back there and you're still feeding it. Get rid of it. Starve that thing. But that's my, my precious idol back there. I can't kill that. You're supposed to hate all the wickedness. Wait, all the wicked, all of it. So what's the, I'm just, I'm just preaching Hebrews 12. The sin, which so, the, the, the sin and the encumbrance which so easily entangles us and run the race. Get rid of it. Wisdom says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now let's get to it. Pride and arrogance in the evil way. Road, path. Do you hate pride? Do you hate this sense of boasting that we have in ourselves? Do you see the haughtiness of one's attitude without even thinking about it? We slide into this arrogance that we're more important than we are. Do you see that in yourself? Let me ask you this. Do you struggle with self-righteousness? It's a form, a really ugly form of pride. Perhaps all, you could, it's possible that all pride, all arrogance can be wrapped up into this sense of self-righteousness. I can illustrate it with, uh, with, with, with racism or prejudice over skin color. Any prejudice over skin color is not culturally driven so much as driven by the inner sinfulness of the individual who sees in the other person a difference. That person's skin is different than my skin. 
And that is a contradiction of my self-importance since what I am is the good thing and anything that is different from me must be the bad thing. And that's, the, that's inherent. It's part of your sinful, cursed nature. You have to think that through and say, wait a second. It's not right because it's me. What makes me right or good is that God made me in his image just like that other fella or gal over there. And then you're theologically going back to what God thinks and what God says, and you're not doing that inner self-righteousness thing. But that's where it comes from. That's one of the sources of this problem. And it's problems of differences. And guess what happens? Because it's a problem that's inherent in the human human condition. It happens across all different borders, all different cultures, all different subsections. The, <laughs> the snoodles and Dr. Seuss, it's this great little book about the, the snoodles are these people that there's two tribes and one have stars on theirs, they have star on their belly and the other don't. And those that have the stars are in and those that don't have the stars are out. And it's really this ridiculous thing because there's no difference between them except for a marking. But you can read that. It's not really homework, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration that shows the, the ridiculous way we do this. But it happens across all cultures and all boundaries. And, um, uh, and it, it, it's here, as you know, and we've, we're having a break. Everybody's taking a break from this being the headlines. I'm sure that it's going to fire back up just as soon as possible. Um, but um, election year is coming up. That'll be fun. But making this issue... And then saying that is the issue when we're talking about righteousness and sin and life and death and wisdom and folly. And then clouding that issue with racism or clouding that issue with cultural differences or things that aren't biblically an issue. You see what I mean? That's really the problem. And we have to learn to really question everything we hear and read and, um, and, and keep our finger in the Bible. But the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance is the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Who's, who hates that? Lady wisdom. So if, so if I get her and I adopt her attitude, then what happens? I hate it too. And now I have wisdom. That's the illustration. I have wisdom if I choose. And listen to me, choose to hate wickedness. Do you choose it? Do you choose to hate wickedness? Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I'm under, I, I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign. Rulers decree justice. By me, the princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. That's a promise of God through Lady Wisdom and the pen of Solomon inspired by the Holy Spirit. If you want wisdom and you go after wisdom, you will get it, but you're gonna have to make some choices. And it has to do with moral choices. I hate wickedness, she says. Well, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And uh, we can all say, yes, that's a good principle, but then we all have to put it into practice. Let's look at the alternative. Let's look at the wisdom of fearing the Lord in terms of the fools of Proverbs 6. This is a fun little, little message tonight. Proverbs 6. Um, when's the last time you did a work on Proverbs 6? We haven't looked at this together as a church family in probably um, 12 or 13 years. So it's about time. The way Proverbs 6, by the way, this is the Proverbs 1 through 8 long poem section of Proverbs. And, um, and then he gets into the ditties, into the, like the one-liners or the, the one verse per message sort of Proverbs. In, verse, in chapter 10, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad. He, it's now one-shot messages, verse by verse in Proverbs 10. But one through nine is, um, is long poetry. They're long poem messages. And chapter six, verses one through 22, is a lead up to a, a discussion he has on harlotry on, on young men going after um, someone that is not their wife sexually, which is a big problem and uh, the d- destruction of this civilization, uh, I know for one empirical example. So we're not going to get into the, the, the harlotry section, but it is what he's leading to. But I want you to hear the three fools and the seven things in Proverbs chapter six, the three fools and the seven things, and then the challenge to listen. In verses 1 through 5, you have the petty, P-E-T-I-Y is how you would transliterate that into English, petty. It's translated naive, and it's a certain kind of fool that everybody is. Everybody is this kind of fool until you learn something because it has to do with ignorance. You don't know what you don't know, so you, you got the ability to make decisions. If you have the ability to make decisions, raise your hand. See, everybody just decided not to raise their hand. It's okay. But you have that capacity if you have that ability, but do you know what to do with it? 
See, when we don't know yet, we have this power, but we don't know how to use it. And that's a dangerous thing. And that's the fool that is gullible. And if you don't like being called a fool when you're young, um, I'm sorry, this is a kind of folly that you want to get out of as quick as you can. So don't join the culture. Don't join Rehoboam and his friends and go listen to your peers and make sure that you stay foolish for, till you're in your 30s. Don't do that. Go after wisdom so that you learn how to use your capacity to make choices. But in Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, the gullible fool has become surety for his neighbor because he's overcommitted. He's committed to something that he has no right to commit to. My son, if you've become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, you've been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. What? Okay, what happened was a young man has the ability to sign as, as a, a, an adult. He's entered the majority, but he doesn't know enough yet not to sign anything. And his friend comes along, it's Pinocchio and, and uh, Lampwick and the fox and the guys come along and they say, hey, we got something for you. And they say, here, come with us. We're going to get this thing, but we need you to sign with us because I can't do this with just my signature. I need a second signature. Well, why am I signing a second signature? Oh, don't worry about that. Or they tell you, well, here's the thing. I've got plenty of money, but in case I default on this loan, then you're just saying you'll pay for it. But I don't need you to pay for it because I'm rich. I got a lot of money. And so the person is asking for a cosign, basically, on a loan, which is always, almost always a bad, a bad idea. Don't cosign on a loan. So the young man says, well, it's my friend, my neighbor. He's asking me to do this. He's asking me to sign. I'll sign. And so you make that choice. You do that thing that you shouldn't have done. And you've committed yourself for the entirety of the loan because if the person defaults, now it's on you. But, I, but he, couldn't get the, he couldn't get the car unless I co-signed. Yeah, so don't ever do that. But here he's done it. And so the, the guy disappears with the car. He's not making any payments. They come, come knocking at your door is kind of the idea. And so dad says... If you find yourself, the concept is overcommitted. You've said you would do something that you really can't do because you're a young and gullible man. Everybody knows you're 18, 20, 25, 30, 60, whatever. Everybody, everybody knows that you are uh, possibly uh, over your skis here. And you just, the younger you are, the more fresh your face, the more you're likely to be able to beg off. So you just go to the older fella, the old sergeant major that's retired, that's now running the used car lot and charging 40% interest on cars for soldiers, predatory lending and all that. You just go talk to them and you beg them to give you a pass. Please forgive this stupidity that I've entered into. What's happened was the guy was a crook and I didn't know it. And I, I, you, I didn't know. And I'm so sorry. But by doing that, what you're saying is, I want to have integrity, but I don't yet. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to make any good decisions. And please forgive me for my being stupid. That's what you have to do if you're the young man who's over your skis, who's overcommitted. Well, I'm never going to do that. Well, if you are guilty of gullibility and you find yourself committed beyond your, your capacity, that's what you have to do. You have to beg forgiveness and default. And it's, it's sad when you have to do that, but that's, that's the nature of that fool, the petit in verses one through five. The second fool is a surprise because we don't think of the second guy as a fool, but he really is the sluggardly fool. This guy's a little further down the line. He knows better, but he doesn't have the, uh, the, the motivation to do better. And by the way, the fear of the Lord would have helped you with the gullible fool. You would have said, I don't really know what I don't know. I better get somebody that knows what they're doing to come talk to me. Talk me through this. I'm really, I don't know you. I'm not sure. Let me, let me get somebody to help me. The fear of the Lord would get you to, to go after some wisdom and ask for some more help. The sluggardly fool knows that God isn't pleased if we don't serve, if we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. So the sluggard in verse six is, is told by Solomon to, as a human, bearing God's image to go to something that doesn't bear God's image something that isn't a human. Go below the human race to the animals and learn from them. And it makes us think of Arthur Pendragon in Mort d'Arthur and um, the, the Once and Future King, where Merlin would teach him from looking at the animals. Solomon, being wise as he is, says, go look at the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And then he gives a proverb 
in the middle of this poetry on wisdom. He says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. I have to do it. It's going to be kind of like Schubert. And boom, your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond. That's the idea, a little, little rest. And all of a sudden, oh, you missed it. And, and you, you were going to be successful, but you missed the bus. And uh, they don't want people that miss the bus. And so you, your, your chance at life was canceled. So you have to try to get another chance built up to where they'll give you a second chance. So you're now in a lower tier. And you, you had a shot, but you didn't take it because you were being lazy. A little folding of hands, your poverty will come on you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. And that's the, the second fool of these three. And the third one, it, it, these are getting progressively worse because responsible, because you know better, but you don't do better. This is the person that is fully committed to folly, fully committed to folly, the man of worthlessness. Your Bible might say a worthless person. This is actually an Ish Belial, a man of Belial, a man of worthlessness. He's a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. Now watch the description of this fellow. He walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet and he points with his fingers. This guy's dancing around. What does that mean? He walks with his mouth well, it means he's talking as he's walking. He's going about and he's around and he's looking for ears that can hear what he has to say because he isn't just foolish on his own account. He is metastasizing his folly through every possible means of communication. He signals to communicate with his hands. His feet are shuffling around a signal. He is a walking billboard, a, a live animated animatronic billboard to say, do not fear the Lord and follow me in being a fool. That's why he's such a man of worthlessness. He isn't just a fool on his own account. He's leading others into folly. This is a true villain. The other two are, they're, they're, they're trouble, but they're not so villainous. This guy is so morally corrupt that he has no functioning conscience. The man of worthlessness. Who with perversity in his heart continually devise evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, this is the outcome for the man of worthlessness. His calamity will come suddenly, instantly he'll be broken, and there will be no healing. That's the outcome. You dance around and mess around too much on the edge of the cliff, and you fall off, and there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's the picture. And so why is Solomon saying this to his sons? Because it's very likely that unless they make some choices to go after wisdom and choose daily, moment by moment, to fear the Lord, that they're going to be in one of these categories of foolishness. They're going to, they're going to regret it, and they're going to be a proverb for others to witness. And that it's because no relationship with God is because they don't fear the Lord. They're not thinking in this moment, God cares about my choice. God is there. He's righteous. He's holy. He's, he's infinitely glorious. And his discipline is much, much worse than anything I can imagine for myself. And I don't want his divine discipline that corrects me to get back on the path. I want in the fear of the Lord for him to be pleased with my choices. a personal relationship with God that Solomon's pointing to. Well, in verse 16, we get into the seven abominations. There are six things, even seven. This is a, a, a poetic device in Hebrew that we see in several places in the Bible where you'll say, uh, I really want to talk about a list of seven things, but I'll say six. There are six things, even seven, meaning it was pretty bad, but now it's really worse, totally, totally you know, building up to the seven things that God hates. And there are a lot of things God hates, but um, you can be absolutely dogmatically certain that he really hates these since Solomon and the inspiration of the Spirit tells us. Six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Now, if we want to be silly about this, we could say, well, technically those are two eyes. So that makes eight things because we're counting. But no, the thing he hates is that someone is arrogant. He hates arrogance in someone. That haughty eyes isn't just the, your eyes. It's that you are looking down where you need to be looking up to him. But you're not looking at him. You're looking down on that which you can look down on. And you're despising, literally, actually despising him. Haughty eyes, that's in your eyeballs. A lying tongue, well, that'd be what your mouth does. A lying tongue. Can you lie without saying words? You can. You can believe things that you tell yourself without saying a word and lie to yourself and destroy your soul. Hands that shed innocent blood. So we went from eyes to mouth to hands. See how that's very visual for the children, for the young sons to, to read? Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. 
These are things that you can absolutely be certain that God hates. Feet that run rapidly to evil. See, wickedness is something that wisdom, Lady Wisdom says, I hate. I hate wickedness. The fear of the Lord is to hate wickedness. Do you? Do you hate it? One who spreads strife among brothers. You should memorize this list. It would be a checklist of things not to do. Let's go over it again. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, so far, I'm not doing one of those. I haven't killed anybody. A heart that devises wicked plans. That's inside. Feet that run rapidly to evil, apparently to carry out those plans. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. And then you have the challenge for Solomon to listen. He's always telling his boys to listen. Now, I do, I hope you do, listen when Solomon says listen. Apparently, the crown prince, Solomon's son Rehoboam, didn't listen. He's the greatest fool in the Bible because of the differential, because he was given so much wisdom, opportunity to learn how to rule, and he blew it so badly when it was his turn to take over rulership. Rehoboam, the, the, one of the tragic characters of the Bible, one of those sad things that Solomon apparently wrote this collection for his sons. It's, it's training, it's wisdom training for the kings of Israel, but they didn't receive it. This is the first generation didn't. He says in verse 20, my son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you wake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And that's a big introduction. And reproach, uh, reproofs for the discipline are the way of life. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. He launches on this discussion after telling, listen and get this, avoid the harlot. Avoid the woman who is offering something that your body tells you is, is desirable, but there are many other reasons why God is saying no. And so that's the, that's the lead up after this, the three fools and the seven abominations. Listen, hopefully we've portrayed for you that wisdom isn't just knowing how to do something, and that know how to deal with people. A gentle word turns away wrath, so you learn how to do negotiations and be politic with people. It's not about that. The wisdom in Proverbs is about personally relating to righteousness as God is righteous and recognize the moral component of walking before him. And the fear of the Lord is hand in hand with wisdom. If you go after wisdom, you will get the fear of the Lord. These are cases of not fearing the Lord, and that would have motivated the person not to engage in the folly. So we've looked at, we've looked at the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. Now, what I started this, this evening with was the New Testament teaches about the fear of the Lord. The New Testament also has it, and it assumes, and this is one of my uh, validations of my theological summary, that the New Testament grows out of the Old, is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. The wisdom portrayed in Proverbs fits perfectly through the New Testament. There's no recension or contradiction of this concept of living your life in skill, uh, the skill to live your life before God in his pleasure, walking in righteousness. So we've seen it in summary in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord, and it is parlayed beautifully into the New Testament. For example, one of the great summaries of the Christians in the early church after we introduced the Apostle Paul He's just getting started in Acts 9.31. This is a summary statement. It's just, just kind of a closure part of, of one segment of the story to, to, to open the next. The, kind of, the curtain falls on these words. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not Yorat Yahweh like in the Old Testament because this is written in Greek. It's the phobos, the phobos of, um, of kurios. Phobos is, is the Greek word for fear. And it's directly translated from yurah, which is the Hebrew word for fear. And so they're, they're synonymous. And the English word is fear. They continued on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. So the fear of the Lord summarizes the early church and it does so especially when there are signs and wonders, all the miraculous events that they witnessed. And there's a whole lot of the fear, uh, of the word fear in the New Testament. I've looked at it in detail, and uh, I've, I've classified every use of the word group from Phobos. There's three words, basically, 
three different grammatical words that you can look at that say fear. Um, there's the noun, phobos, there's the verb, phobeo, and then there's the, um, the adjective, fearful, like phoberos, and they're all based on this word phobos. Have you ever heard that word for fear before? Do you all have Bible phobia? Uh, phobia is the English word for fear if you're being you know, super, super technical or, or clinical or whatever, phobia. We have various phobias. Um, uh, fear of not having any coffee. I don't know what that's called. Fear of not, not coffee phobia. But phobia is, um, is your English word, but it just comes from this Greek word, phobos, phobeo. And this is what's happening. It's an interesting word when you look at it the way it's used in the New Testament. Um, and I, I told you there's a spectrum. Sometimes it means like peer pressure. They didn't do X because of fear of the crowd. They didn't like, like they didn't have to go, go after John the Baptist because they knew the crowd was, was with him. So they, they feared the crowd. So they didn't, um, um, Herod didn't uh, oppose John the Baptist or whatever. Whenever um, you see an angel in the New Testament, whenever some human being sees an angel, that's not a human. It looks like a human. They say it's a man. I saw a man and he was in white raiment and his face was like lightning or something. Um, that's not a man. It's, a, it's looking, it's a person in the form of a human, but it's an angel, an angelic being. Um, there's always the word fear involved with these. Either they were terribly afraid or the angel says, do not be afraid. But we're, we're, when we see the supernatural creature, it strikes fear in us. And that's how we are. And that, that response, that, that, that shock, that sort of awe, um, why do we have that? It's primal. It's, that, pri- that word primal doesn't really work. It's, it's physical. It's a physical reaction which kicks us into fly, fight or flight because we see somebody that's dangerous. We see somebody that we know inherently there's power here and the differential, this could kill me. Now, that's what happens. I just want to say, theologically, that's what happens when humans see angels throughout the New Testament. Imagine if you could see God. This is just one of his subordinate creatures. We're going to rule the angels. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we have elsewhere, angels are ministering spirits, but when humans see them throughout the scriptures, they are shocked with fear. Imagine if you could see God. This is why I say it's not good to say fear means respect. We just respect the Lord. But he's our dad. He's our heavenly. He's our Abba Father. So because of intimacy, we think we shouldn't be in terrific awe of him. But we should be. We really should be in total awe of him. And the intimacy with him should shock us all the more because of the awe we have for his infinite power. But we forget he's there and we do whatever we feel like. And we just say, you know, have mine own way, Lord. When Jesus does miracles in the Gospels, it's a, it, I'll show you the little chart. I made a chart. There's a chart. All 140, 30-something times that those three words are used in the New Testament. Um, in uh, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are able to ki- unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Does that mean that in the New Testament we shouldn't fear the Lord or that we should fear the Lord? We should fear the Lord because that's Jesus' reasoning, and he revealed that, and he knows better. But, but well, anyway, anyway, let's, let me, let me uh, sample some more of this with you. Um, immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage as I do not be afraid in Matthew 14. They're scared to death because they see Jesus walking on water, and that doesn't fit their paradigm. And so they think it's a ghost. They think it's a spirit. That's a, spirit, that's a, that's a ghost, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. They're scared to death. They're calling out in fear. Um, in Matthew 14, but Peter also has fear. That's a thematic thing in Matthew 14. He says, but seeing the wind, Matthew writes, but seeing the wind, Peter became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of the wind. He became frightened because he saw the wind. And we want to say, no, he didn't. He didn't see the wind. He saw the effects of the wind chopping up the water. He saw the, the storm effects. And that scared him, summarized by the wind. When they heard God's voice uh, in uh, Exodus 20, they're scared to death. It's like God is speaking from a whirlwind volcano on the top of Mount Sinai with, with a horrible cacophony of sound coming from God's voice. And the people say, Lord, uh, Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. You tell us what he wants to say. They're scared. If he speaks to us anymore, we're going to die. The Mount of Transfiguration, there's a similar experience in Matthew 17, for example, when the disciples heard the Lord say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When they heard God say this about his, the, father, the voice of God the Father, they fell down, face down to the ground and were terrified. 
See, the problem with us is that we can't see him. He's not saying things to us. So we're not like the children of Israel, Mount Sinai, saying, oh, we're not feeling it. But that's not the protocol for the time we're in. He doesn't want you to feel it. He doesn't want you to see him. He doesn't want you to hear his voice. He wants you to know from what he's told you. And the question is, do you trust him? It's always a test of faith. Let's look at peer pressure. When they sought to seize Jesus, they feared the people because they considered Jesus to be a prophet in Matthew 21, 46. The word fear, this is the way fear works with, with like peer pressure. They're not going to like it and they're going to oppose me. And so this idea of the other people around and what they'll see, that public fear, it's a way we use the, the concept. We know it very well. Um, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, I was afraid, says the slave, and went away and hid your talent in the ground, seeing you see you have what's yours. I was afraid of what? I was afraid of the master. I was afraid of your retribution if I didn't uh, have your money when I got back. So it's a word for fear. And this will come up again in the, in the epistles where we're talking about rulers and even masters over slaves. The right approach is a, a healthy fear that would be like respect. It's a lower grade awe for someone in authority. But where does that come from? Why would we have fear or awe for someone in government or a master uh, if we were in slavery and, and that person was our master? Why would we necessarily fear? What would be the attitude? Where would that come from? It comes from the delegation. It comes from God gets my fear because he's in awe. I'm in awe of him. And he has sovereignly delegated what he's delegated. And when I find myself under the, uh, an authority that he's delegated, I fear that because of him. And you do what you do in the fear of the Lord is the rationale there. When there was an earthquake at the tomb, when Jesus um, was buried and rose again, um, oh, no, not before the, before the earthquake at the crucifixion, when there was the earthquake, um, the, the centurion in Matthew 27, 54, and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. So the fear of the, the miraculous, whenever Jesus does miracles in the gospels, it's just the responses the people feared greatly. There was this awe, this, this is power. This is the kingdom power that's in our, in our midst. And he does it when he casts out demons with the, uh, the garrison demoniac. It does it when he uh, raises the boy from the dead, when they raise the little girl from the dead. When it, whenever there's a casting out of illness, the lady that was healed of her flow of blood feared greatly when, um, when uh, he had done this. Whenever they see angels at, the, at the, the resurrection. So these are all places where fear occurs in the New Testament. And a lot of these, as you could see, are the fear of the Lord. But what I want to get to is what's probably surprising is that the Apostle Paul you know, people, a lot of times people will be like, well, it says in the Gospels, but they were still under that administration. But how can you say that that's true today under the new work of the Spirit that's after the events of the Gospels? Well, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul says, we the apostles persuade men, but we're made manifest to God, and I hope we're made manifest in your, also in your consciences. Paul is driven, and there are lots of places I could go back to our, our little little spreadsheet there. There's tons of stuff in Paul's letters using this concept of the fear of God. Let me grab just one. Um, let's see. Okay, uh, not Paul, but Peter, 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and phobos. My Bible translates reverence, but we all, everywhere else it's fear. Wives, don't be afraid of your husbands in 1 Peter 3, 6, but fear them in 1 Peter 3, 2, because there's awe and respect, and then there's the terror of what man might do to me, and one is a legitimate and the other's not. And uh, for, let's see, let me grab, I, I told you Paul. Oh yeah, this would be a good one to close on. And 2 Corinthians 12, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you, Corinthians, to be not what I wish, may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. This is, I said, fear concerning the failings of the flock. I'm afraid that when I come, it's phobeo. I'm afraid. I don't want this to be. It's when there's an outcome that we don't want, there, want to happen. The point I'm making is that um, there's lots of fear described in the New Testament, and I believe it is always when it's illicit. It's always a fear of loss. There's always something, some outcome that I don't want to happen. 
The fear of the Lord is a different thing, though. The fear of the Lord is not fear of an undesirable outcome so much as a recognition of the awesome glory that God is. But understand, if you want to do the wrong thing, there's an outcome you're not going to like. And so it does motivate us that way. So relating to God as he is calls for the fear of the Lord. And it is a baseline attitude we should all adopt. If you're struggling with it, this would be a good matter for prayer for you because the Lord Jesus didn't suffer for a lack of this. Nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, the chance we've had tonight to think about wisdom and folly and how the fear of the Lord intersects with our faith in you and our trust in you. And Father, we know that perfect love does cast out fear. We're not in terror of you, but we are to be in awe. And I pray that you give us that sense of your presence, of your person, of your glory, so that we would approach life wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.